This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast dedicated to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here this week with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and producer Genevieve Kosky, taking the mic from Rachel Handler. We're all firm believers in the idea that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and how it relates to a current release. Keith, you want to give us this week's movie pairing? Absolutely. As we're recording this, the seventh installment in the Star Wars series, The Force Awakens, has topped a billion dollars in the box office after just two weeks in release. According to Box Office Mojo, the film has broken 37 different box office records in categories like Biggest Ever Opening Day and Opening Week, Biggest PG-13 Opening, Biggest Single Day Take, and so forth. We haven't seen this kind of widespread anticipation and rush to the box office for a Star Wars movie in more than 15 years. Star Wars excitement last peaked in 1999 over The Phantom Menace. For the old crowd who grew up on George Lucas's original trilogy, Phantom Menace was a disappointment, and it sparked a lot of mockery and bitter complaining over the years, as have the subsequent prequels. So Force Awakens director and co-writer J.J. Abrams consciously designed his film as a corrective for fans. It ignores the prequels and reaches back to the first Star Wars movie, the 1977 film now commonly known as A New Hope, for inspiration, plot points, and design. Since he was clearly comparing his movie with A New Hope, it seemed like a perfect chance for us to do the same thing. Tasha, how are we going to break down the first Star Wars movie in comparison with the most recent one? In the first half of this week's discussion, we'll look at the Star Wars phenomenon, what inspired George Lucas, the story the original film tells, how the legend around it grew into this billion-dollar business, and how other films have been influenced by what he did back in 1977. Then in the second half, coming out later this week, we'll compare A New Hope and Force Awakens in terms of their shared story elements and design, and ask ourselves whether Abrams is really made a sequel, a remake, a reboot, or something else entirely. And in a special edition of our recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show, we'll close out 2015 with our top five films of the year, our ultimate recommendations for what you should watch during the January catch-up season. So lower the blast doors, guys. I have a bad feeling about this conversation, but I'm sure it'll all be fine if we just move along and try to find those droids we're looking for. To note that if George Lucas wasn't a marketing savant, we could potentially be living in a very different filmmaking landscape today. When Lucas funded the first Star Wars movie through 20th Century Fox back in the 1970s, he had the right to demand a higher writing and directing fee because he'd just been at the helm of a hit in American Graffiti. But he waived that right in exchange for the film's marketing and sequel rights and for a substantial percentage of the gross take. Fox took the deal, not necessarily expecting Star Wars to be a hit that would make sequels and follow-ups worthwhile. But the film became the biggest box office smash of the year. 
and then of the 1970s. And then, adjusted for inflation, the second biggest movie of all time after Gone with the Wind. The profits Lucas got and the extremely lucrative merchandise for the film let him finance his own movies from that point forward, giving him complete control over the franchise pretty much until he sold it to Disney in 2012. But that all came later. First, he had to actually make the film, drawing heavily on Joseph Campbell's perspective on mythology, Akira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress, and 1930s science fiction serials, among other things. Lucas has said a lot of things over the years about what he was looking for with the look and feel of the first Star Wars. He wanted it to be ethereal and airy, but for everything to have a used junky look. He wanted it to be visually bright and overexposed, but full of lurking dark shadows. He wanted bright, vivid colors. He wanted primal black and white contrast. He wanted it to look like a lush fantasy, but also also like a realistic documentary. He apparently wanted it to look like everything at once. And that, plus the science fiction serial inspiration, may explain why Star Wars feels like so many films packed into one. It's an episodic movie crammed with characters and incident, jumping from world to world. It moves step by step from a thundering space epic to a small world coming of age story and then back again over and over and over. It's heavily steeped in religious feeling and terminology, but it's still a nuts and bolts story about robots and space fights and a bad guy in a cape and mask. It's fundamentally iconic, a movie made by a man who understood what icons looked like and how to create them. And it launched a series that after nearly 40 years is still going stronger than ever. It's a lot to take in around one film. But let's start with where it came from. George Lucas had a little history with science fiction uh, with his student film, which he expanded into his first feature, THX 1138. But at the time of Star Wars, he was mostly known for non-narrative experimental shorts and for American Graffiti, which was his first hit and which was a nostalgic period piece about boys and cars, essentially. How do you guys see Star Wars fitting into his early career? Well, I mean, if you watch THX 1138, it, it is a very different kind of science fiction film. I mean, there's science fiction of the year. This was the original short came from the 60s. It was turned into a feature in the early 70s, and it fit right. Even though it was a flop, it kind of fit right into the sort of pessimistic, dystopian, um, you know, science fiction of the year that kind of extrapolated the, the worst possible outcomes for the problems of the, of, of the time. But at the same time, a lot of the sound effects are there. A lot of sort of the concern for production design is there. The striking uniforms of the the police officers that are, that are not that far removed from the stormtroopers in Star Wars are all there. And, you know, there's a lot of American graffiti in the, in the movie as well. I mean, Lucas was a racing enthusiast, and, and if it weren't for a car accident, uh, he might have pursued that instead of becoming a filmmaker. And, and you know, Luke, you know, wanting to go into town to get the power converters, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, or basically just go in and hang out with his friends and bum around with his, his land speeder. It's very much a, a sort of an American graffiti um, inspired thing or sort of kind of drawing from the same material. Like in a very different uh, Star Star Wars, uh, you know, if things had gone a little differently, maybe Luke would just, we would just watch Luke, you know, cruise around the, the circuit with his buddies. Um, but uh, the, we didn't get that film, though. We got a very different film. But one that's, that is, I think, very much from the same filmmaker as, as American Graffiti and THX 1138. I mean, I think Luke is the strongest connection to American Graffiti, both the racing stuff and just kind of the teenager on the precipice of adult I mean like this is a you know on one level a coming of age story as Tasha mentioned so I think uh, you can kind of see Lucas mining some of the same emotions there but I also I mean I'm not as well versed in early George Lucas or any non-Star Wars George Lucas for that matter uh, as the rest of you are but I was reading that Lucas wrote American Graffiti kind of in response to a challenge from Francis Ford Coppola to write something very mainstream and I think maybe he kind of extends that idea to science fiction with Star Wars, the idea of making something that can appeal to the broadest audience possible. Because, again, Keith, this is much more in your wheelhouse than mine. But I think uh, Star Wars was sci-fi for all audiences that we weren't necessarily seeing at that time. For sure. And and if you look at sort of the, the science fiction that immediately precedes it, it's a kind of a striking contrast. Uh, I mean... I don't think it's necessarily the biggest film of the year or a hit on the scale of, of Star Wars because what was. But I mean, if you look at Logan's Run, which came out the year earlier, uh, has some similar kind of special effects. There's a lot of miniature works in it. Star Wars is a lot more impressive, but it's all towards, again, sort of like that early 70s science fiction of uh, pessimism. Uh, it has it has some of the sort of the rip-roaring adventures. You kind of like felt like that cycle was kind of playing out and already kind of feeling things pushing more towards adventures. But you know, Star Wars took it all the way. Really more than Lucas's early career, it feels like the film is almost better explained in the context of science fiction of that period. Because to me, I don't really see anything like it. I mean, maybe that's why it was such a hit. I mean, maybe it had some elements, that, as you say, that came from uh, Logan's Run or, or, or from other science fiction of the period. But maybe it's, it's, it's optimism, the, the combination of, of wonder 
in just action and excitement mm-hmm. and fun. What's the precedent for that? And the the sort of ongoing story with merchandising elements were kind of set up by Planet of the Apes. There were five Planet of the Apes films, and there's a lot of toys around them and play sets and a lot of things that, that would later, you know, Star Wars would, would go further with. But, you know, escaping to a, a world <laughs> ruled, a horrible world ruled by apes that will eventually blow up by a nuclear bomb is a lot less fun than sort of escaping into Star Wars. And I think that's kind of the bit, you know, as clear of a contrast between the two eras of science fiction in the 70s as, you, as you'll find. I mean, it really seems like science fiction between in in film, specifically in uh, cinema, between roughly the 30s and the 70s was about dread. It was about, you know, the fear that we're going to lose our humanity to robots or to conformism or to some sort of like evil fascist dictatorship or to like any number of other things. The, the need to burn books in order to uh, further a society where everybody's alike. There's this constant, you know, much like you've always said about horror channeling current fears, science fiction has been used over and over and over to channel fears of what the future is going to look like. And Lucas was consciously reaching back to like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, you know, these uh, these big serial stories that kind of took on uh, science fiction as a place of wonder, like the both the future and space are just these gigantic playgrounds for, you know, two fisted men of action and strong willed heroines and weird bird winged men and uh, like uh, all sorts of things that we could barely even imagine. But it seems like such a throwback when you look at just like the decades of science fiction that immediately preceded it. It's interesting, too, um, to consider that Close Encounters came out the same year. Close Mm -hmm. Encounters of the Third Kind came out in, in, I believe, December of that year. And I mean, I, I love that movie to, to no end. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a transitional film as well because you have all this sort of this dread and Watergate-influenced paranoia. That's the fabric of the film, but it kind of leads toward, it definitely leads to a much more transcendent, optimistic, sort of gee whiz look at, at space and, and uh, a film filled with wonder. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, there's even take Star Wars out of the equation, there was probably something pushing science fiction in different directions anyway. Well, I mean, it's also, it's a film about mystery. It's a Mm -hmm. film about, you know, something's coming and we don't know what. We can see how it's affecting people, but we don't really know what we're getting. Whereas Star Wars is, as I say, it's kind of a very junky, lived-in universe. And there isn't a whole lot of mystery there. There's a a practicality to it. All the spaceships are these kind of vehicles that are used to get around. There's not a whole lot of, like, mystery to, you know, alien races or alien planets or anything like that. They're all just places where like workaday people live and, and work around. But I think it is significant that, I mean, Lucas and Spielberg were friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spielberg was the one who recommended Lucas hire John Williams to do the soundtrack uh, after Williams did Jaws for Spielberg. I mean, they were working together closely at this time. So it's it's hard to believe that if both of them were making movies about space at the same time, they didn't both kind of have their hands in each other's uh, projects a little yeah. bit. Well, okay, but I think with both films, there's that idea that um, that's, I guess, somewhat radical idea that our encounters with the unknown and with outer space could lead to some sort of a positive outcome. Uh, because really, you know, when you encounter people who other uh, outside of Earth, uh, you, that, that uh, hostility is what you expect. And there's some of that uh, here, but... Um, it is called Star Wars. It is called, <laughs> it is called Star Wars, but, but, the, but the outcome is positive in the spirit of the film, you, you know, tilts towards optimism. Not to disagree with you too much, Tasha, but, but I do think there is a certain amount of mis- mystery to Star Wars in the way it... In sort of in, coming from the matter-of-fact presentation where you see an alien for, you know, some of the, like, the cantina denizens get five seconds of screen time, but I'm left wondering, you know, maybe it's just because I was a kid when it came out, but I was wondering, what's the deal with Hammerhead for, for, for years <laughs> after that? And and um, I think that's really a smart move to not make a big deal of stuff, just kind of show you these little details and move on. And I, I think one of the smartest things, the, the biggest thing that he took from Hidden Fortress was kind of using the droids here as your point of as your point of view characters where like sort of the lowliest people in this kingdom uh in this universe uh which they don't they're kind of walking through this this universe they don't really fully understand or they don't have much power in and they're kind of in the position same position viewers are and i think that's a really interesting way to kind of tour this world through people who are kind of being tossed around by it they also have really strikingly familiar personalities. Mm-hmm. When I when I finally got around to watching Hidden Fortress years and years ago, I was expe- I don't know what I was expecting, but I I think I was expecting that there would be a princess and some sort of uh, evil dictatorship and maybe a young 
farm bumpkin that would come along and fix things. I was not expecting to see R2-D2 and C-3PO <laughs> in human form, sure. like walking down a sand dune bickering at each other. I was like, oh my God, Lucas just took this like <laughs> practically word for word. It is, it's really fun to watch Hidden Fortress and see just how much he, he stole. Although I believe there's something that you always say when we have this conversation. Which is about how at no point do R2-D2 and C-3PO talk about raping Princess Leia, which is something that happens uh, in Hidden Fortress. So it does... <laughs> He, weird, did, he didn't borrow thing. that detail, which is probably for the best. Just real quick, as we're talking about kind of the mainstream or broad appeal of this movie, I think we kind of have to get into the issue of whether this is, as some people derisively call it, a, a kid's movie. You know, watching him for the first time as an adult, I was struck by how not childlike it felt while still being very much an all-ages story that would and did appeal to the adolescent preteen audience that internalized this movie so much that it became this huge lasting phenomenon. I'm sitting with some of them right now. (laughs) But it's also not really pandering to that audience either. It's a really interesting balance that can be hard to strike. And I think it's a balance that marks a lot of the best blockbuster scale filmmaking, including Spielberg. Well, I mean, I don't know why George Lucas never, given his his love of marketing and the success of the action figures, he never mar- marketed a torture droid with a <laughs> torturing Princess Leia playset. I mean, there's... Darth Vader is like is a spooky villain, and mm-hmm. I think a spooky villain that has never been equaled in the Star Wars series, despite various attempts to do so. But, I, like, even leaving him and his... <laughs> murder murder predilections aside there's some really dark stuff in this film yeah but it's also dark in a very vague hands-off way i mean vader doesn't even really touch anyone he just like sort oh, he, of, he sort strangles of, that well, first yeah uh, okay, okay first but but, but i mean the kind of the iconic you know vader thing is like him just waving his hand at someone you know and i and it's sword fights you know it, it's it's very kind of um like fairy tale violence in a way. I mean, even the torture droid, as you call it, it's just it's just hovering there with a little uh, a needle. <laughs> it's not it. a little needle. <laughs> no, it's not a little needle. But that's a pretty much as far as it goes. I mean, I, I don't think it's that dark. But I, but it's kind of interesting. I just I watched the film uh, with my uh, seven year old today. I just brought this up because I wanted to hear about this. <laughs> okay, so but but and, and I I did the thing where I I would pause it frequently and explain in detail what was going on. But I think there was really not a need for me to do that. I, I wanted to so she could be really clear on the story because I wanted her to watch the sequels and maybe perhaps see the new film. But fundamentally, she understood these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. This is the goal. But this how? Is... What sort of uh, visual <laughs> distinction is there to distinguish between the good and the bad guys? Right. Well, there's Right. Of course, there's plenty. Um, so it's not hard to do to understand, you know, on a very basic level. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I certainly don't remember reading or caring about what was in the scrolls at the beginning i, I still i still don't care what's in the scroll a tax tax some sort of a tax thing happening i don't i don't care um so you can but you can connect with the film you know again like all really good general entertainment and we talked about this with toy story as well you can connect with the film uh at different ages in different ways and uh, that's certainly a, you know, a real fundamental power of star wars in my opinion is that it is a pg rated movie that everyone can see and everyone can get into and that that's obviously carried through through the through the original films to the prequels into the billion dollar and counting new film well i mean let's let's talk about that we've kind of talked about the fact that it was it was an immense immense groundbreaking hit what do you think made it such a hit is it that accessibility is it that iconic quality is it the fact that nobody had seen anything like this since the 30s assuming they were around in the 30s what like what quality of Star Wars do you think made it take off in such a way? To me, it's really just a potent combination of the wonder of outer space and of a galaxy far, far away. You know, the sort of wonder that we experience in like 2001, for example, of just of just seeing outer space uh, and then combined with action uh, and in hero in really clear heroes and villains. You know, I think there's a fundamental simplicity to this whole uh, franchise, really, that it's a strange thing. I, I can't really under, even understand it myself because I don't think that any of these films, save for maybe Empire Strikes Back, is a great you know they they have i think the a new hope has some plain flaws the, the performances are in dialogue for example not so not not that strong but i could not when i got the screening notice for the new 
film, I, I was so excited, and I'm like, <laughs> where the what is the root of that? <laughs> Why? Like, because because there's dozens of films that I've seen this year that are better that I should be more excited about based on based on the filmmaker's track record. But there is something about this about Star Wars that really. Um, gets to people, so maybe maybe you all can define it better than I can. Well, I think I think also we kind of talked about how it just felt like the right film at the time. Uh, there's a dark side to that. Uh, Rick, Rick Perlstein is the <laughs> stay away from the dark side. Yeah, please. well, yeah. Rick, Rick Perlstein, who's a writer I, I like a lot, um, uh, talked about how it kind of fit in with the simplifying of American culture in, 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 the, in the late 70s and kind of the rise of Reagan and, and the, the need to see these things in sort of stark black and white good versus evil terms mm-hmm. versus the sort of early 70s uh, fretful reckoning with uh, where we've gone as a country. But um, throwing all that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> throwing all that very interesting stuff out. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. good, actually. Yeah. No, it, it's, quite, it's quite good. And, 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 and I agree, but there's also kind of a yes and there's all, it's also a movie we love. Uh, and, and in terms of like its actual success, Success on a in, as a film, there is. I think it's a matter of the right people coming together at the right time. I mean, not to take anything away from Lucas, but the people that he had working on this, like Ralph McQuarrie, the production mm-hmm. designer, and you know Douglas Trumbull and other effects people, and John Williams, like the contributions that that Williams score made to all these movies. You know, you, you can't you can't you can't underestimate it. It's almost like the science fiction movie making equivalent of uh, these four guys happen to be in Liverpool at the same time. <laughs> it's just sort of the, the right people coming together. Um, Remove one of those elements, and it's a it's a different movie. Yeah, I've never been a big musical score person, but I I mean I have to admit when I sat down to watch Force Awakens and that blue text came on screen that said a long time ago in a galaxy far far away, and that music came up like it felt like being a child in the theater again. And rewatching this and watching Force Awakens, which uses William's score again, I realized it may not be possible to overestimate the importance of that score. I mean, how iconic and hard hitting it was, but also just how thrilling it is. You know, the emotional quality of the movie comes in really large part from that score. And I mean, Lucas wanted to just score it with like classical music that he loved, existing classical music. As I said, Spielberg talked him into to hiring Williams. But I mean, if you can imagine a Star Wars that was just, just like full of Mozart and Brahms, like I, I can't even imagine what that would have looked like. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to hear or see what that looks like. Um, I don't. There's a YouTube clip version of that. I, I was actually thinking <laughs> some, someone's probably done it. I don't have a, a good answer for why it was such a phenomenon. Partly because that phenomenon never really touched me personally. So, but um, one thing you know, I've you guys, I've been listening to you guys, and you've quoted the long time ago in a galaxy far, far away several times. And the long time ago part of that, I think, might be pretty important to how we process this movie is because science fiction you generally think the future but by positing it as a long time ago it becomes a fairy tale it becomes once upon a time and then you know you bring in that big john williams score and it becomes this epic it becomes it becomes this story that we kind of already know and can already connect to on that fundamental level and then you know the details just become part of that connection as, as the movie goes on I guess one last thing I'd kind of like to posit, and Keith touched on this with the the idea of the cantina. There is so much room left in this movie when it's over, and that's something I want to talk about a little more in our in our second segment. When you as you walk away from it, there's so much left in this movie for imagination. There's so many places that the film goes and doesn't spend enough time to wear out the scenario, and doesn't as so many action movies do completely destroy every place that it goes. And you do see that in Force Awakens, just that sense of here's something who's, that's been there for a thousand years. We're going to completely demolish it before we leave. five of them at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Star Wars gives you this sense of this like giant, complicated galaxy where there's something going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it feels like every place that it touches down, there are a million other stories. And boy, has the, uh, the spinoffs in the franchise taken advantage of that. I just doing research before Force Awakens came out and looking into things like uh, the short story collection Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina that really does dig into like the possible backstory of Hammerhead and Werewolf 
Wolfman and uh, Panda Baba. I made a joke at some point for a thing I was writing for The Verge about how, or no, I think it was for the AV Club, about how, oh, we ought to get to the backstory of the guy that gets his arm cut off. Well, it turns out that between the the novelizations and the comics and the short stories, and not only does he have a backstory, he also has like a long career after the he, movie. He's a doctor, right? He's no, he hangs out with a doctor oh, who's sorry. basically sort of Doctor Mengele. He's kind of the joke intended, the strong arm guy that the doctor uses. It's really, really long and complicated, and there are body swaps involved and slavery, and it's it's crazy the degree to which fans have come along in filled in any possible gap where these movies didn't like dig into the backstory of individuals. But the fact that there's so much room for that, uh, I don't know whether that really affected people back in the 1970s the way it does today when people just seize on any chance to make something their own as they become fans of it. But it really seems to have sparked people's imaginations. In addition to like sort of the coolness of the designs and the smartness of, of the marketing, I think that is that quality that allowed the merchandising to take off. I think the, the sort of running with these things and making them your own via play. And that, that was my experience as a kid anyway. And this, this thing kind of colonized my imagination for about, you know, for at least at least through Empire, at which point I kind of moved on to other things mm-hmm. in terms of play and not playing and growing up and putting away toys too soon as I did. Uh, but for when I did play with toys, uh, this, these, these were my toys I played with. Yeah, me too. It's funny too. Like I, I had to, um, I watched them all again for this Rolling Stone list I did about, it was just a list about the, like, the 50 best Star Wars characters. And, uh, and we had to kind of go with the text, which were the, the text of these six films and not dig into the, all these other things. But it, it is remarkable to me the impression that characters who get one line or two two words or almost say virtually nothing um it's so it's so it ends up being so powerful and it just triggers the imagination just by being there that that i guess that mystery you were talking about earlier keith it just kind of one character kind of plants an idea in your head and you just kind of run with it and that that's kind of exciting uh, you know and exciting to to as an as a viewer it's exciting to know that each new new place you go to and the places you go to all are, are so varied you know you can meet all kinds of different creatures and things like that it's 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 fun and there's a sense of discovery watching the film there's also just kind of an incredible ambition behind it again like going back and reading the original script lucas is very elaborate and detailed in his description of like some of these some of these creatures like he very obviously had a a, an extremely visual idea of what all these things should look like and is sort of in in some of his original conceptions like han solo was supposed to be like a giant amphibian with gills and like there's a lot of stuff like that it's just sort of astonishing the degree to which in a non-digital age he was just confident from the start that they could put all this stuff on film somehow. Uh, up to the point where they just had to use Rick Baker's leftover werewolf design for some of the <laughs> cantina people, but, but you know. Yeah, you do what you can. So we've kind of talked a lot around this subject already, but just to kind of dive into the middle of it, going back and re-watching the film today, like what strikes you most about the filmmaking? What, what strikes you most about like what Lucas actually did to put this all on film? It just really moves for one thing, and this, this, the pace of it is is so propulsive. And even like it has these nice lyrical moments, like Luke kind of uh, you know staring at the sun, wondering wondering what's out there, and, and that you know set to John Williams' wonderful score. But it actually plays as like sort of a a, a ballad thrown into a mixtape at just the right moment. Uh, I mean, this it, it just kind of has a a great sense of uh, of a forward push to the whole thing. That that is such a great moment, and it, for the exact reason you talk about, it is it is maybe the one really self conscious moment of the film where it's just like we're, with the, with the with the score and with him basically it's not it, there's no reason for him to be doing that other than to convey that this is his moment type of type of thing it doesn't move the action forward as uh, the rest of the film does so that's interesting and the other thing too is just George Lucas's talent as a as in world building you know this is this established this and it's something that he built built on uh, with the sequels and and also the prequels it's so much his universe and it overcomes again some real fundamental problems with uh the writing and with the acting which he doesn't handle quite as well i mean i think beyond uh, of the human characters really it's uh, han solo is the only one who really 
makes uh who seems like a i don't know who seems very natural and th- i mean it's very hard for a movie to survive that but this does survive that what strikes me most about the actual filmmaking is how good most of it still looks you know we we talk about how obsessed lucas was with details to the point where that's almost kind of become a a ding against his, his filmmaking persona that he can be kind of a trees over forest kind of filmmaker but That attention to detail is so important in this first movie in particular, where it's creating this new world for the first time, this new world that does have the sense that it's been lived in and has all these stories that can be told. And the fact that it was all done practically, you know, without computers is both apparent and impressive. The use of models and mats in this movie to create a sense of scale is really impressive. I I mean, rewatching this movie for the first time in two decades, you know, the look of this movie had sort of deteriorated in my imagination where I was remembering it looking a lot more kind of cardboardy and constructed. It had basically become space balls <laughs> visually <laughs> in my mind. And it's not like that at all. And it, it was really gratifying to to recognize that and, and realize that as an adult viewer. Oh, that's fascinating because the exact opposite is true for me. I yeah. like I remember it as being digitally perfect, essentially. And seeing scenes where you actually see those matte out lines around, you know, when the rebel ship is being uh, taken up into the Star Destroyer and you can you can kind of see that it's a model being matted in atop another model. Like uh, the the tiny little flaws that Lucas felt he really had to go back and correct uh, really surprised me because so much of this movie looks so sophisticated. Whenever I could actually see the filmmaking, it came as a surprise to me. Yeah, I guess I actually see seeing the filmmaking as a positive. Like mm-hmm. when you can see like, oh, that's a model. That's awesome because it looks huge. Like that is more impressive to me than that looks seamless, hmm. if that makes sense. Like I, it just feels more loved. Um, I should also note that I did watch the remastered DVDs from a couple years back that has yeah. all the horrible CGI mm-hmm. inserted for no reason. So maybe this is just a reaction to the contrast between that really bad uh, turn of the millennium CGI edition and the sort of purity of the tactile filmmaking that stood out to me this time. One of the things about those, like the little flaws, the little details, is that this film is so concentrated on everything looking lived in, like looking like all of the the vehicles look like you know, they've been around for 20 years and they're being constantly repaired and they're on their last legs. Darth Vader's helmet, like, is is scuffed and scratched. Mm-hmm. I just, I think of him as, like, this seamless black liquid thing. But whenever the camera gets up close on him, like, you can tell that he's been in battles. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I also noticed in The Force Awakens, Kylo Ren's helmet mm-hmm. is similarly dinged. Which Yeah, but yeah. you kind of get the feeling that, like, he went went back to his room and, like, kicked it around <laughs> right. in circles a few times. Just whacked it, it with his lightsaber and a... Fit of rage. In a fit of also, fury. while we're talking about just the visual style of, the, of uh, A New Hope and how it plays out in Force Awakens, I'd forgotten about all the wipes in the, in, in, <laughs> oh, the yeah. in, in A New Hope, which I really like in the context of A New Hope because it really drives home kind of the storybook feel, the fairy tale. It's like a turning a page almost, you know. Or it's, it's, it's not a Kurosawa very, touch, too. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, much yeah. Kurosawa and, touch. And I love that J.J. Abrams brought those wipes to the Force Awakens. I'm just going to go out on, on a limb and be the person who says, I hate those wipes. <gasps> really? I, I hated them even as a kid but oh. in the original Star Wars. I was just like, oh, this is cheesy. And I don't know Asha. what about it felt cheesy to me even as a child. But it's just it's so self-conscious. And he like Lucas claimed that he wanted a, a documentary feel for this. Like he wanted it to feel like the story of something that, that happened. And for me, the wipes always took me out of you know, the, there's a grandeur and a majesty to these films that, like, my personal feeling is that the big thing that people objected to in the prequels that made them angry about the prequels was, you know, that they it, they robbed Star Wars of, like, all of this grandeur and majesty. But for me, the, the wipes are just kind of cheesy and corny. See, mm. I, I, I guess it kind of plays <laughs> into the whole, you know, fairy tale storybook thing that I connect to with it. Like, it, it has a very, like, like I said, a page turning feel like meanwhile on another planet you know or and it it doesn't feel documentary like at all but honestly i 
don't get that from any of of, of these movies. So I don't know where Lucas was uh, putting that in the film. There's some distance, I think, between maybe what he intended for the film and what the film is. (laughs) Uh, uh, Listening to your intro, I was like, well, yeah, I guess there's some of that, but there's not a lot of that. Um, The documentary feel of the film is not present. One thing I actually am curious about, uh, because this was another thing that was in Keith's essay that kind of kind of threw me for a loop is that is the political intent of the film. I mean, this was his apocalypse now, or was again intended to be, um, you know, with, with the you know a response perhaps to Vietnam, uh, you know, with with the empire as the United States, right? I mean, yeah, I, I, I to the degree to which that is that is really uh, spelled out or even present in, in the film itself is a little, you know. Um, it's, it's tough to, you know, tough to see. It's easier to see with the Ewoks later on. I mean, you know, Lucas was one of many people that worked on Apocalypse, you know, early versions of Apocalypse Now. And this, this is in some ways spun out of that. Um, but it is sort of a scrappy band of rebels going to come up against a heavily armed, technologically advanced civilization. I think ultimately the film plays out more as anti-fascist than anything else. I mean, you have this sort of very, crisply uniformed uh, um, uh, European empire versus a, a, a not not so much in this film as in later films, but a much more diverse uh, group of rebels. But uh, and this is something I, I, I haven't actually gone to confirm, but I guess some of the, so the shot construction in the award, the medal ceremony the end of, of A New Hope is is actually uh, quoting uh, Triumph of the Will. So that's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know how much of uh, irony uh, you want to read into that. Right, which is completely but, right. Contrary <laughs> to, again, the presumed intent of the film to do that right the notes in in lucas's original script like the early drafts are much much clearer about where he's drawing inspiration from how much of that is actually like i said in in the film that we see uh i don't know yeah again reading that script uh which is readily available online is fun because i kind of feel like you could just hand it to a lot of fans who have debated a lot of things in star wars over the years i mean the script makes it very clear that han shot first there's just Mm. there's no question the (laughs) when han solo says his thing about making the the kessel run in less than 12 parsecs the script says uh ben kenobi reacts to solo's stupid attempt to impress them with obvious misinformation (laughs) so you know years and years of fan debate about what the kessel run uh, making the kessel run in a unit of distance instead of time like it's right there in the script but how much of that fan debate is rooted in uh debates that were begun before you could find the script on the internet like i feel like those are debates that people were having in 1977 (laughs) yeah exactly and they've just kind of like carried over in the popular imagination that is a very fair thing and sort of when talking about that time span i guess another thing that's that's worth considering in all of this is that what lucas says about wanting a documentary feel but also wanting a like an abstract fantasy feel but also wanting uh, like a hard-edged sharp feel these are compiled from different interviews over different time periods lucas has become very much a mythologizer and like what he says now about what he intended as the uh vietnam allegory versus what he said back then those things may not jibe and um, like more and more you have to consider the source for anything that he says about his intentions or like where any of this came from the source in terms of when he said it and who he's he's talking to. It's been a long time and uh, things have changed a lot for George Lucas since he wrote this. And I, I think there is certainly a little bit of uh, revision in his uh, mythologizing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's a piece about mythology in and of itself. It seems appropriate that the filmmaker behind it would also be engaging in a certain amount of mythologizing. Which is why... Why, when uh, considering a film, really uh, the matter of uh, of authorial intent is not relevant. Well, except when that filmmaker actually goes and changes their source That's material true. because no, their authorial totally. intent has Totally, I mean, I mean, like the, the the Han shot first thing is certainly up for. Uh, debate given what, when he sort of went back and how he tinkered with that and what that what that means it's a shame that that happened it, it, it really kills the impact of that scene if you if you see it as we did on yeah. the this this is really a don't get me started subject <laughs> <laughs> all right before we get uh, keith started let's uh let's go to something a little safer can we just start, we we haven't really dug into the the specifics of this movie uh, and you know so many of these lines are iconic so many of these scenes so many of these performances so much about these characters do you, what are you what are you guys' favorite bits uh, your favorite moments lines scenes what have you in star wars a new hope 
you know, I'm going to go with just the most rousing moment of the film, which is which is when Luke Skywalker is going for his run and Han Solo appears and and clears uh, clears the area and it and it all happens so fast. It all it's all really within about uh, ten seconds when he knocks knocks the uh, Darth Vader and his uh, fighters on the flank away and and then the death blow is delivered and it's just it's it's such a thrilling you know end to a, a sequence that was very exciting. It's, I always I like seeing uh, dudes with uh, 70s mustaches getting, <laughs> getting blown to bits. Um, uh, oh, your precious s- violence! Such an exciting <laughs> lead up. It just it just pulls that off. I mean, you know, I mean the, the film. Uh, you know, it, it, again, it's just so simple. Uh, and again, my my kid, my kid was like, "It's like a video game." Yeah. She said, never having really played, um, you know, <laughs> video games. But um, uh, but there, it's it's such a satisfying conclusion, and and uh, it, it gets you every time. You know, it's not poetry necessarily, but I think that the orchestration of it is so beautiful. Uh, and uh, in le- least favorite moments, I didn't like it when Jabba the Hutt ap- appeared. Uh, I, thought was, <laughs> I thought that was really unnecessary. Just, don't get me started. <laughs> you got him started, Scott. So much getting started. I, I think my answer now is the same as when I was four, which I, I really liked the trash compactor scene. Yeah. And I, think, I was actually thinking of that too. Yeah, I think it then because it was just kind of gross and they were in the garbage and you know i was four but now i mean i i like it now because it's just sort of this you know other movies don't show you how, how where the garbage goes in, mm. in, in space stations it's kind of fascinating but it's also you know it's the first moment you get you know four classic characters all in one room kind of bantering back and forth with you know uh well i guess i don't know chewy banters but you know what i mean it is ripped directly from you know 30s 40s serials but it also shows like this this device of the walls closing in on your heroes it worked then it works it works in the 70s i'm sure it would work now if anyone could could find a new twist on it and if you're a boy with your voice changing i think the line it's magnetically sealed really kind of (laughs) resonates with you with your voice changing it's more (laughs) there's a lot of that with luke looks like i'm going nowhere yeah. Uh, or, or, or what are the, what are the the power conductors? Is power really, converters. Power converters, right? I think I think that was like perfect take. We're we're moving on, moving on. Now. <laughs> Least favorite sequence or bit or no nothing. nothing. Every it's, every it's, single it's second of Star, it is gold. Star Wars. I'm not gonna. You don't ask Keith to critique Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Genevieve. Like I said, I was kind of toying with the trash compactor too, but I'll just expand my favorite moment out to their quote unquote rescue of of Leia, like that that whole kind of group of scenes where they're outrunning the stormtroopers and, and ju- it's just kind of like a bumbling rescue which is always uh, in- entertaining to me and, and just the I'm Luke Skywalker I'm here to rescue you you're who you know like <laughs> just that undercutting of of the of the, of, of the bravado and and the tropes yeah um just lends all those uh, little scenes kind of a an extra edge of excitement yeah, I, I mean, for me, part of the appeal of Star Wars is uh, Princess Leia, as mm-hmm. you know, kick-ass, kick-ass princess who stands up to Darth Vader, who is scary as hell, mm-hmm. stands up to torture. Except for his scuffed helmet. I mean, come on, <laughs> get it together, <laughs> He Darth. is too busy force-choking people to go give himself a good helmet buff. Come on. Uh, but yeah, that the sequence where they show up to rescue her and, and Luke gets off his, like... I've come across an entire galaxy to save your life. And she's like, yeah, whatever. Get out of my way. That is some iconic early feminism there. I, I, I mean, for me, that the the actual moment where they rescue Princess Leia and she immediately takes over her own rescue is just so, so key. But given that you got there first, this, the whole final lightsaber duel between Darth Vader and Kenobi is just so amazing to me. I mean, it's so frightening and intense and thrilling and realizing like even as a child that Kenobi had kind of set himself up to die and was expecting it and expected to make that sacrifice and yet the impact that that has on Luke there's there's so many emotions that go on there and one of them is just kind of amusement at you know Darth Vader having killed this old enemy and then he's gone and he he has no idea why and he's sitting there poking the rope <laughs> with his lightsaber like you can just see the WTF it's a very Kylo helmet. Ren moment like this isn't how I wanted this day to go. What? I would like to assert that that uh, R two D two is the best character of the entire. Oh my god! <laughs> it is thinking like that that led us to flying super R two D two in the prequels, like just fixing freaking everything. It also everything. led us to BB eight. 
Yes, but no, but, but, but no, R two D two. Oh, so you don't you 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 dispute my claim uh, because R two D two gets them out of every jam. Like he's he just he just bleeps and bleeps and he does his little <laughs> thing with his uh, with. His, uh, uh, meanwhile, you know, C three PO frets and uh, and R two D two actually gets it done. Well, the story doesn't happen without R two D two. He is you know yeah, if, if he's this, important at every step. If this is the hero's he, journey, you know, he's yeah. the call to adventure. He is, and, and he's not. Know. He's but he's not a passive. He's not passive. He does a lot of stuff. No, I mean R two D two is great don't Gets get him out of the wrong. trash compactor and well he's also he's he's freaking brave i mean there's just this constant thing going on i as far as least favorite things uh as for me i was gonna say i think the awards ceremony at the end is way uh, too long uh, yeah it's not it's not that it's bad in and of itself but it goes on forever and it's like all right enough with the self-congratulation go find darth vader you didn't kill him come right. on he's still out there <laughs> and chewie doesn't get a medal either and chewie doesn't get a medal because nobody's tall enough to give him a medal chewie did get a medal oh yeah it's it's clear in the comic book adaptation oh yeah other places. this confirms that Chewbacca did indeed get a medal on the re- rebooted Expanded Universe canon, and now we know what he did with the medal. It's now owned by Zaro, resident of the newly liberated planet Andalum 4. So, spe- Why do we know that? Spe- <laughs> speaking of Chewie and R2-D2, a name I left out of my Call of Heroes is Ben Burt, who does the, the, the sound design for oh, all yeah, this. Oh like, yeah, for sure. You know, the insane, insane detailed process of recording animals and traffic noises and combining them so they become TIE fighter sounds. I mean, just, you know, it's not everyone who could do that. What is the, What are the dailies of this? thing look like you know so much of what makes the film is you know i mean there's some production obviously but there's a lot of post-production too but like what do the dailies look like we, we, you know where you're where you're really just getting the staging the dialogue the performances i mean really is this look is this a piece of crap in dailies that 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 <laughs> then becomes a good a, a better film later well, I mean, a lot of it is still there. You know, the costuming is there. David Prowse is actually stalking around in a in a black suit, looking terrifying in his cape. I mean, the fact that the the lasers haven't been drawn in yet, and the uh, the sounds aren't there, doesn't mean he's he's less terrifying. But no, I see what you mean, and it becomes a kind of an interesting comparison with like modern day, like the prequels. I I've seen some of the pictures of what the shots look like, and you've got somebody in a green suit standing against a green wall, just sticking like that's all there is after the initial shooting so like yeah the pace of the thing hadn't really been established yet i I just think it would have looked dead i mean i I think back to like when the when lucas showed this uh, i think brian de palma just famously just laughed at it thought it was was ridiculous um and uh and i can see that (laughs) i can i can see that response it is it but it all sort of uh you know, it came together, but uh, but I would think that if I were a studio boss or something, and and checking out checking out dailies of this this movie coming in, I'd be skeptical about the quality of the film. Well, it all kind of comes down to to that script and the the degree to which you can tell from it that he had it all in his head. He knew what it was supposed to look like, mm-hmm. and that, I guess that's what makes a visionary is the ability to see something that nobody else can see before it's actually there. All right. So uh, before closing out the first half of this week's show, we want to dig into a substantial email we got in response to our last set of podcasts, looking at The Revenant and Werner Herzog's Agira, The Wrath of God. Uh, Genevieve, you want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, James in Edinburgh catches us up on an aspect of Agira we didn't dig into. Here's what he has to say. Agira is notable, as you point out, for being the first major collaboration between Herzog and Klaus Kinski. It's also the first major collaboration after Herzog's debut, Signs of Life, between Herzog and Florian Fricke, his friend from youth and head of the prog rock group Popova. With the help of a choir organ, which blends multiple recordings of choir song to make an eerie and ethereal drone, he makes as big a mark as Kinski on the film. Without that music, the particular atmosphere of the crumbling yet mythical would not be as present. His music helps make the jungle a twisted green cathedral all these men are lost in. Fricka would go on to provide music to some of Herzog's greatest films, and he even had a cameo in his 1974 masterpiece, The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. The relationship is a nice contrast to Herzog's and Kinski's, warm where the other is hostile, while being equally, if not more, fruitful. Herzog talks very highly of Fricka on commentaries, and given the astounding music the man created for him, I can see why. I mean, that is a very evocative soundtrack. And I think we, I could, could have sworn we talked at, at least a little bit about it because it it really does contribute to that environment of madness, you know, that, that feeling of at least uh, you have some hint of what's going on in uh, Kinski's character's head, 
just because you can hear hear it reflected in the environment. Yeah, and it's something that, that we I mean, that we just talked about it with Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars, you're very aware of the music right from the start of the movie, but it's it's something that helps to be reminded to be conscious of that sort of thing and the kind of effect that it's having on you, even if you're not entirely conscious of it at the time. Uh, there's a lot more to James' letter, uh, and here's another part that particularly stood out. Uh, he says, I was glad to hear the humor acknowledged as it's something that people miss or ignore with Herzog. The guy made one of the greatest comedies of the 2000s, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, and is constantly aping his own persona, as in Plastic Bag or Incident at Loch Ness. Yet he still gets looked at by some as pretentious or overly self-serious. Inuritu is someone who fulfills those assumptions far more than Herzog, as the closest he gets to a gag is at the expense of someone he disagrees with. I feel for you lot watching The Revenant after this, as one film desperately grabs that quote-unquote reality, yet the other gets so much closer to truth because it knows when not to care about reality. And Yuritu's a guy who fulfills what Andrew Sarah said of Robert Wise, filmmaker I quite like. He's, quote, more elaborate than expressive, unquote, while Herzog is the opposite. Again, a very good point. Um, I, you know, I think he's maybe... I don't know anyone who thinks of Herzog as being pretentious, or overly self-serious. I feel like that may have been maybe a straw man. Am I am I wrong about that? I think up until a few years ago, that may have been a perception that some people have. I th- had. I think that the comedy of Werner Herzog has become more apparent in the in recent years. I mean, it's a very wry and dry comedy. I think you can very easily, you know, just as you kind of said in the conversation about Aguirre that it would only take a little bit of a twist to turn it into a Mm -hmm. comedy. I think it would only take a little bit of a twist for it to be just this completely airless, self-important film. Yeah, maybe, maybe we're just, maybe just now we understand him a little bit better as, as someone who does have uh, a sense of humor. Uh, I do also like uh, the point of uh, bad Lieutenant Port of Cold New Orleans as being one of the great comedies of the decade. (laughs) Uh, Again, not necessarily a point I agree with, but I do, uh, enjoy that film a great deal and find a few sequences in it to be really hilarious. But so. I also find, and you're, he's not wrong. There are some, there's some really funny sequences in that, and the, it's a really nice black comedy in many ways. But I also find that film really moving, and I think part of why I I, I like uh, Herzog is that he can he can entertain those two different uh, moods side by side. Yeah, and, too. you know, I even as somebody who liked The Revenant more than anyone else at this table, I would be the first to acknowledge that it is not a, a film that acknowledges humor or that... Uh, he should not. I don't... He, <laughs> when he tries, it's not snowflakes. good. Snowflakes. It's not good. All oh, the snowflakes eating the snowflakes. I, even that, I don't think it's, it's not meant to be a humorous moment. It's meant to be a very, very serious form of being lighthearted. <laughs> There's a snowflakes moment in Hateful Eight, too. Yeah, and a very, very similar one, too, but I kind of like that one better than the one in The Revenant. Well, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners and would love to hear more from you about this episode and the episodes to come. To share your thoughts about A New Hope, The Force Awakens, or the Star Wars series in general, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website. All right, that wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. On the second half of this week's conversation, we'll launch our forum talking over the many ways the original Star Wars and the newest entry, The Force Awakens, work together and compete with each other. And I promise I'll punch anyone who tries to do a Jar Jar Binks impression. That'll be out in a few days, and you'll get to hear this. I think he had him been cast somewhat on his ability to say woo. Like, <laughs> Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, this podcast is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. You should be cautious. Cautious.